When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is there a highlight for you when you look back at the teams you played for that you value the most? I wore number 51 with the New York Knicks for my dad. And you wore his jersey number. And I wore my daddy's jersey number in New York. You know, he must have been, he must have been proud. You know, uh, he put a lot of time and effort into us. I would tell any kid, never accept being bullied. I was coming out of depression and anxiety, right? So I, I was still finding myself at this time. And I said, it would be cool to change my name. How did you settle on yeah. Meta World Peace? How did you pick Meta? Well, that was none other than Meta World Peace. And of course, uh, he's the only one with that name. We all know who we're talking about. This is a gentleman that was drafted to the Chicago Bulls in 1999. He played for the Pacers, the Kings, the Rockets, the Lakers, the Knicks, again with the Lakers. NBA champion in 2010. Unfortunately, he is probably remembered best for what's known as Malice at the Palace, and that's the brawl that took place at the Pistons-Pacers game. And, you know, that made me really curious about Meta, and I'll tell you why. Everything seemed inconsistent. You look at that and you go, wow, here's a guy going after people up in the stands. But then when you find out all the other things about him, this is a guy that has worked advocating for mental health in the schools. Uh, This is a guy that raffled off his NBA World Championship ring with the proceeds going to nonprofits that provide mental health services. He just seemed like full of contradictions. I wanted to talk to him and I have to say I was not disappointed. This is an extremely interesting guy and I'm gonna tip my hand. He's really impressive and I like him a lot. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm so anxious to talk to you and get into this. And I want to ask questions you've probably been asked a million times and then maybe some you haven't. I want people to get to know you maybe in a way they haven't. Your father was Ron Artest Sr., right? Yes, he was. He was a boxer. Golden gloves, right? He did golden gloves, but he also played high school basketball. He gave up basketball because his coach sat him 
for a gentleman named Willie Willie Sims who lives in Israel. Black guy played in Israel and now lives in Israel, got married in Israel. And my dad wanted to play with him and sometimes he would sit the bench, but he was a good player. But then he turned to boxing also. Uh, I guess at the age of 19, when he had me, that's when everything was over. So he quit playing then. Yeah. I want to talk about your playing career, obviously, which was amazing, and we'll get to all of that. But you were born in 79, and you grew up in Queensbridge? Yes. Tell me about that. What was that like? Queensbridge was an interesting place, right? Because you get all the inspiration came from, I would say, MC Shan, old, old school rapper, had the song called The Bridge, right? <laughs> and um, had the big famous beef for Karis One. Then after MC Shan, you get um, Tragedy, Roxanne Shantae, where they did a movie on Netflix. They did a movie about her on Netflix. Roxanne, Roxanne. Yeah. Right? Roxanne. And so she used to babysit me when I was a baby. Really? Yes. So she used, to, she used to babysit me when I was a baby. You know? Then you get Nasty Nas, one of the all-time great hip-hop, you know, lyricists. He came after that era with Carl Mega and then Nature and Mob Deep, who was a huge group they came after. So... I'm growing up in this place with stars and celebrities like everywhere. It was crazy. So what was it like neighborhood-wise? Was it rough? Was it low-income, middle? What was it like? It was low-income, definitely not middle, uh, definitely not poor, you know, but, but low-income. And then it was, it was fun, it was celebrities, but then it was violence and it was happiness. It was like every emotion at the same, same time. Did you worry about the violence? Was it something where you... Worried about being on the streets, getting shot? It just depends. Like, So depending on who's your crew or who's your friends, depending on what they did that week, you could potentially either inherit some drama or you could be around some shots when they're going off. So you always have to navigate like what's going on in a neighborhood. Um, sometimes you have a friend one week and then like the next month or next year, he's like full on gangster, you know? So it, it was like a little bit of everything. It, it was a very interesting place. Wow. You started playing basketball when you were what? My dad took me on a court when I was six. No, no, sorry, when I was eight. Yeah. First time he took me on a basketball court on 12th Street. Just in the park? Yeah, 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 in the park. I read that you were saying that from the very beginning, he fouled you hard. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, I don't give my dad enough respect for him being a basketball player. He was a really good basketball player, and I always think I was the first one, but my dad was first, right? So, but he brought the physicalness to our work working sessions. And in order to be my dad, I had to be tough because he, my dad was a lot of muscles and big guy, strong guy. So he definitely made me tough. So when you say he fouled you hard and pushed you on the court, what do you mean? What would he do? Yeah, so I would go for a layup. He would hit me, bump me, elbow me, push, um, push me out the way, just would not let me score, you know? And I would get so mad sometimes, uh, not to the point where I was frustrated with my dad, just frustrated that, I wasn't strong enough to compete. Was he telling you why he did it? No, nah, he wasn't a real technical teacher. He was more of like a parent. To, to me, was just very nurturing. Uh, you can do it. Uh, uh, come on, son. You know, it was no, no, not a lot of teaching going on. But did he tell you he was toughening you up? Nope. He didn't say anything, huh? Not always positive. Um, never was at the game saying uh, anything negative towards a coach. He was just always a po- positive on the basketball court. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you started playing for the school, were you any good? Well, my, well, when I was 10, I was horrible. I remember I lost a three-on-three tournament. When I started playing at CYO, a, ca- a Catholic League, a Catholic youth organization, right? Um, 
I wasn't that good. I got cut from that team. One of my other friends made it. I got cut. That was St. Rita's, right? I got cut from St. Rita's. <laughs> yeah, you know, my first year, was I was it was humbling. And then when I was 14, I was cut from another team right. called Aim High with Coach Kev Jackson. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't always easy. What do you think about that when you got – I mean, 14, now it's starting to be social. Yeah. You care what you think. And yeah. And you got cut from the team. What did you say mm-hmm. to yourself? It was So when I got cut from that team, I said I knew I shouldn't have been cut because I was, I was tough. But, you know, maybe I didn't make it for whatever reason. So I asked the coach. His name is Kev Jackson, legendary coach. I asked him, I said, could I uh, just come to every game? So I would go every game and sit on the bench. He remembers that. He respects me. He put me on the team next time. But I went to every game, and I was just – I wasn't really cheering for the guys, but I was very supportive. You know, I wasn't as social at that time. You know, and, and I remember going through that experience and, and, and facing the fear and facing the fact that somebody said I'm not good. I wanted to see it face-to-face every day. So you went to every game? Every game. Were you in uniform? Not in uniform. You just sat on the bench? Sat up in street clothes and just, like, toughed it out. And, and, and I, w- I was practicing, so I knew I was getting better. And then, you know, when I came back, you know, then I was the best on the team. <laughs> so did people ask you, why are you on the bench? Why are you here? Um, some people would ask, but at that time, you know, I'm a young kid just coming into my own. So nobody know how good I am or how good I'm going to be. So nobody's, like, feeling sorry for me or saying you should be on the team. Yeah. For the most part, I'm just off the team, playing with, you know, watching a lot of good players. But now you could have gone and pouted and said, "Ah, oh, you cut me, screw you, I don't want to be around you or mm-hmm. whatever. But instead you went to every game and sat there. I, absolutely. You know, um, I was humble. I was I was humbling myself and I wanted to be good and I wanted to just figure out why did this person cut me? I'm not going to take it personal, but, you know, I'm going to let you know that you need me and we won championships together. <laughs> and you kept practicing. Kept practicing, kept practicing. So you made it the next year. Made it, made it the next year, yep. And Coach, how were you then? You know, 30 balls, defense, everything. <laughs> yeah. They, could, they, could, they couldn't really handle me. <laughs> Not, I, yeah, I was too tough. So by the next year, he saw a completely different player. Yeah, he had the best player on his team. <laughs> yeah. He had the best player on his team. Did he wonder if he made a mistake cutting you? He, Coach Kev Jackson, who Kenny Smith knows, uh, Vincent Smith, his brother, Kenny Anderson, uh, Lamar Odom, they know Kevin, Kevin Jackson – does not really care how you feel. Yeah. Old school coach. <laughs> Could care less. Could care less. Good or bad, don't really care how you feel. So you wind up going to St. John's, right? Yes. How'd it go there? St. John's is great. Uh, ups and downs, but I was recruited by Fran Fischilla, Coach Ron Rutledge, a little bit of Louis Conaseca, Felipe Lopez was playing. And when I got there my, my first year, it was tough because I wasn't a really skilled player. I was okay, but I wasn't great in... And um, I wish I could have been better, but I didn't have the skills certain people hard, had. So college was extremely hard for me. Really? Yeah. Even though you were the best player on yeah. the team earlier, it's tough to make that jump to college. College was hard for me. And I I just, maybe I put too much pressure on myself. I, I feel like my stats should have been better. But, you know, we, we did go to the uh, NCAA tournament for the first time in years. In the second year, we went to the Elite Eight. So I was a general. I can handle defense and I can control the pace of a game with defense, but offensively, I was really bad. Really bad? No, not really bad. I just wasn't, yeah. I wasn't as good as I was when I was in Indiana. Yeah, I have a hard time <laughs> believing really bad. I mean, come on. But, you know, I feel like I should have been better. Yeah. yeah I feel like I should have been a lot better. You stayed there two years, right? Yeah, two years. And then you were drafted. Yeah, two years. 
I wanted to go out of high school, and I went to speak to my uh, former Riverside Church legend, um, Ernest Lutch, big legend in New York City. And I said, hey, uh, see if I can go uh, to the NBA this year out of La Salle. And then he, he went to a guy named Mark Bottlestein, one of the biggest agents in basketball. And then Mark gave him some information and said, he'll be a second-round pick. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to be second-round. No, I didn't want to be second-round. Were you happy that the Bulls took you? I was very happy that the Bulls took me. I wish the Knicks would have took me. Yeah. Because I'm from New York City. Right. And um, I have a lot of pride. But um, and, and I wanted to bring a title back to New York City. I know they had you know, Melo and they had all these other guys and they had a chance to get LeBron. But at that time, I felt like nobody wanted to win a title in New, in New York City as bad or as much as me. You know, and you get a guy that went to Indiana, Defensive Player of the Year, sixth in MVP voting that year, um, All-Star, 13 more NBA, before the Raw. And I'm like, this would have been that player in New York City. And I always felt like I did these, I did a lot of good things other places, but I wanted to do it in New York City. I mean, you had to be happy in Chicago, too. That's pretty rarefied air, right? I mean, absolutely. So it's funny because when I got to Chicago, every time I played NBA Live, which is extinct now, like dinosaurs. Right. Right. Um, that was our favorite game, and I would play with the Bulls all the time. Yeah. B.J. Armstrong was my favorite player, and then my best friend Cedric, Indiana, was his favorite team. So when I got to the Bulls, I'm like, I'm with my favorite team. You know, it's, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Is there a highlight for you when you look back at the teams you played for that you value the most? Um, I value it's a lot of things. The, the Knicks. <laughs> when I put on that 51 jersey, my dad's number at Long Island City High School, he wore number 51. And um, I wore number 51 with the New York Knicks for my dad. And um, that was probably the highlight of my career. I didn't play a lot. Uh, I wish I would have played more. Uh, and I wanted to win a title. I wish we would have had the players to win a title. Um, I wasn't one of those players at that time that could help win a title. Um, but that was probably the most uh, amazing part of my, of my professional career. Yeah. And you wore his jersey number. And I wore my daddy's jersey number in New York. You know, he must have been, he must have been proud. You know, uh, he put a lot of time and effort into us. Yeah. Talk about changing your name. I know you've been asked that question a million times. Why did you change it? And why did you change it to what you changed it to? I changed my name for a lot of reasons. Uh, one reason, because Chad Ochocinco did it. Right. right. So that was the main reason. Let me give him some credit. When he changed his name, I'm just like, wow, that is so cool. And I was in my... At that time, I was in my crazy, um, you know, colorful uh, ways at that time. I was young and just wanted to do everything. I said, I want to do that one day. So I had a bunch of names. And as I got, but I also was at the end of my, um, I would say, depression. I was coming out of depression and anxiety, right? So I, I was still finding myself at this time. And I said, it would be cool to change my name. Um, and the first couple of names was like So Hood, you know, Ron, so Queensbridge. I wanted, it, I wanted it to be something that was just ghetto and from the streets, you know. And um, but then as I got older, I said, okay, I need to. You considered So Hood? Yeah, So Hood okay. was. Um, I, I wore a hat called So Hood yeah. to a red carpet, you know. Yeah. And um, and I said, well, I'm gonna change my name to So Hood because I'm just So Hood, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that was like something I was gonna do, and um. And usually when I make my mind up, I just do it. And I and I was like, if I put Soho in the back of my shirt, and you know all the all the street, you know, at all all my street dudes is gonna feel it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that's what I was thinking at the time. 
And then I said, you know, we need a little bit, bit of peace in the world. So I said, okay, <laughs> let me try to balance this thing out. How did you pick the name? How did you settle on yeah. Meta World Peace? How did you pick Meta? Um, you know, I was into Buddhism at that time. Right. I was getting into meditation and learning how to breathe and stuff. And, um, and it, it was helping with my anxiety and my emotion and my life. So um, I got into Buddhism because it was, the, it was one of the only faiths that I could relate to. And that kept me calm and, and kept me centered. And I just fell in love with it. So I, I feel, uh, so uh, me and my partner, Heidi, we said, okay, let's come up with a Buddhist name or something like that. She just gave me a bunch of names and we started going through them. Are you glad you did? Yeah, I, I'm, very, I'm very happy that my name is Meta. I wish I would have kept my dad's name, Ronald, but I'm very happy that my name is Meta. What do people call you now? Um, my niece calls me Uncle Ron. My, my mama calls me Ron Ron. You know, my, my dad calls me uh, Ron. <laughs> um, every kid that watches the NBA and I was born in 2005 calls me Mr. World Peace <laughs> or World <laughs> Peace. They don't know me as Ron, I test. Yeah. People in LA call me Meta. Um, New York City, everybody calls me Ron Ron, my real name. <laughs> yeah. My real nickname. And then in Indiana, people call me Ron. <laughs> yeah. What feels most natural to you? Um, it doesn't really matter to me because depending on where you're at, uh, that's going to determine what you call me. Depending on what year you was born, that's also going to determine what you call me. Yeah. You did something that really jumped out at me. In the fall of 2010, you raffled off your 2010 NBA World Championship ring, and the proceeds went to nonprofits that provide mental health services in different communities. Yes. Tell me about that. I mean, you know, uh, I've been helped. I remember going through marriage counseling when I had issues with my ex-wife at the time, who's a really good friend of mine. So I remember being able to pay for marriage counseling. I remember being able to pay for anything I needed. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people going through things I'm going through. My parents went through it and wasn't able to receive those uh, sessions. I said, we got we to gotta do something about this. So in Sacramento, I wanted to do YouTube sessions and uh, somehow give access to uh, mental health uh, sessions and therapy to kids that wasn't able to pay for it. Well, that didn't work because nobody really understood production and content and marketing. And, and I'm like, you know, they, they don't understand that sometimes in smaller places or, 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 in a, or certain positions in, in, in different industries. So um, when I got to LA like five years later, perfect platform for me to not have my own show, but to just give the message out. And a lot of people heard it. A lot of therapists and counselors to this day, they thank me for that. You also helped a congresswoman advocate for the Mental Health in Schools Act. And you participated in the mental health awareness campaigns with the LA Department of Health and the New York Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And it's one thing to have an awareness. It's one thing to have in your mind that you kind of want to do it, but to actually get out there and participate and speak about it and put energy into it is another thing. You kind of put action behind your thoughts and feelings. What made you do that? You know, um, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to make an impact. I felt like I, I wasn't doing enough. And every time I did something, even when I gave the seven hundred, six hundred seventy-one thousand dollars back to all these different institutions. I feel like it wasn't enough, you know. And I feel like the opportunity to go to Capitol Hill with Congresswoman Napolitano, I'm like, this could be huge. And and even that that wasn't even enough, 
you know, it's still things that I feel we can do to help families, um, you know, to help uh, relationships, which is the core of having a real strong family. It's still more that we can do. Did you need therapy? Absolutely. What was the biggest driver for you? What did you need to deal with the most? The biggest thing for me was when I was, when I was 16 years old, I planned my baby. So I had my first baby. She came when I was 17. So I wanted to be a good parent. And a lot of things was going uh, wrong at that time that I couldn't deal with. And I couldn't deal with adversity. So it, it spiraled out of control. And it piled on problem on top of problem on top of problem. And I wasn't being the parent that I wanted to be. That's why I really embraced therapy. I wanted to be a good partner. I wanted to be a good parent. And it just that just wasn't the case in my life. But you planned to have a baby at 16. Yeah, I did. Why? I wanted a baby at 13. Why? Um, I had my first godson at 13 years old. My whole ho- my household, my sister, um, seven babies. You know, a lot of different baby daddies. You know, my mom, she's got, I think, six or eight of us, something like that. <laughs> a couple of different baby fathers. You know, myself, I have two babies, uh, two baby mamas also. I'm going to have a third because I'm going to I'm married and I'm going to have more babies. <laughs> and uh, my brother also. So my household, we, we was born with babies. The youngest baby that was born in my household, I think I was, I think my sister was 15 years old. So seeing that, I'm like, oh, wow, my nephew, I love my nephew. And I want to have babies also. And I want to be in a relationship for a long time. But at 16, did you think you could provide for the baby? I had no plan. <laughs> you had no plan? No plan because you got in, in, in New York City or in America, sometimes you can live off the government and people that's paying taxes, such as I do now. So it's, it's, it's almost, um, it almost enables you. So I'm thinking, I'll have a baby, and I'm getting food stamps anyway. I'm getting milk and cheese, hard government cheese that turns into bricks if you leave it outside for more than an hour. Peanut butter that the oil rises to the top and it get real hard. What <laughs> comes in a white can? You know, we're going to eat. So I wasn't, and I had a house that was paid for half by, uh, I guess, uh, Medicaid or wigs and all this, you know, I forget the terminologies. So I, I didn't feel like I would be hungry or my child would be hungry. Would you say to a 16-year-old kid today that they should have a baby if they no. don't have a job and a way to do it? No way. No way. What would you say to yourself when you were 16 years old? If you could talk to 16-year-old Ron Artest now, what would you say to him? I think it's different. Like I, I, I kind of knew that something would go right. I'm not going to say I had no plan. I, I, I was a driven kid. And I, I kind of knew something was going to go right for me. And my baby, Sadie, that's here, I'm 39. I just turned 39. And I have a grandbaby. <laughs> you know, and so I'm, ex- I'm so excited. But I wouldn't tell anybody to have a baby uh, at 16 years old or, or to even think about it. I would say um, build a relationship, you know, meet uh, people, have some friends. Don't date right away. Don't commit fast, you know, and, and enjoy your life and, and get a career. If you were talking to yourself now at 16, you'd say, whoa, hold on. Don't do it yet. Not myself. Somebody else. <laughs> yeah, somebody yeah, else. Yeah, I, I would, you'd still have the baby at 16? I would have, absolutely. Really? I, I, you know why? Because um, my, my daughter is uh, strong and her, her, her siblings love her and she's everything that I thought she would be. You right. know, she's like a, a kind of like a mother figure, you know, in her siblings life. Right. You know, and her mom is a very strong lady also. And my kids are just like strong-willed people. 
and they drive me. You know, um, they, they, they're so inspiring. You know, so I, it, it was a really good choice, but I wouldn't tell anybody else to do that. <laughs> yeah. So she's... <laughs> she's 21. 21? Yeah. What's she do? Uh, well, she was in college, and she currently dropped out of college to be... She wanted to be a chef. So instead of going to business school, she wanted to go down the path to being a chef. Um, and she currently is into investing, and she loves cooking. So um, now that she had the baby, she's uh, taking a break. And I told her, just important this first year, you have to raise the baby, have to be there with your child. And that's what she's doing. Is she married? Um, she's not married, but she has a good boyfriend. Uh, and, and I hope they get married, you know, eventually. You but like I think him was, all right? I do like him. He's from Compton. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> he's got, okay with you? He's okay with me. Yeah. I like him. I like him. You know, uh, it, it, it's something about Queensbridge and Compton that always had that connection, you know, and my daughter who was born in Astoria in the hood because she, I wasn't in the NBA when she was born, you know, and, and, and her boyfriend's from, from Compton. It's pretty cool. Yeah. When you say therapy has been a good thing for you, what's it done for you? For me, therapy, um, let's start with breathing. For me, that when I learned how to breathe is when I really got control over myself. And my first breathing exercises was done with Dr. Santi uh, in 2000 and I think eight when I was with the Rockets. At that point, things changed a lot for me. Uh, also, I would say in 2005, when I got marriage counseling, the marriage counseling helped more than some of the anger management counseling. Yeah. Because we was touching on different things. And in anger management, we were just talking about anger. In marriage counseling, we're talking about everything. And we were talking about things that happened to me as a child, which I was like, oh, wow, I'm angry because of other reasons. Not just I'm not angry because I'm angry. I'm angry because of events that happened when, when I was a child. Would November 19th in the Pistons Pacers brawl, would that have happened? If you had had that kind of therapy before? That would have happened. Yeah, I would, I would never, if somebody was hit me to this day and throw something at me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smack him in the back of the head. I'm not, I'm not giving him in the front. I'm going to give him a smack in the back of the head, like old school parent. You know, yeah. what the hell are you doing, right? Still would, still would do the same thing because uh, hitting people and bullying is unacceptable. Um, I was asked a question in Detroit. A kid said, what do I do when, I'm getting, when my mom is getting bullied? And how do I not harm a, another person? He said, what, what should I do? Like, this is reality. You know, I would tell any kid, never accept being bullied, ever. Always show how tough you are, no matter how big that person is, no matter how small you are. If anybody attacks you, you know, never let anyone bully you. When that happened that night, you got hit in the face with a cup of Diet Coke, right? Yeah, it could have been Coke, could have been Dr. Phil Water, who knows? Yeah. It was something. It was a, <laughs> you got hit in the face with a in cup. The, in the face, in the face. It was yeah. ridiculous. Did you react instantly? Instantly. Yeah. It, I, people say, why I didn't fight Ben Wallace? I could have fought Ben Wallace, but I mean, I already fought enough, and I led the league in flagrant fouls, technical fouls, suspensions. Like, what more do I don't, I don't, I don't need no more drama, <laughs> you know? Um, and I was practicing my uh, meditation methods. Uh, I was taught to go to a happy place at that time. <laughs> I was 23 years old. And always go to a happy place, go to a happy place. So we're not into confrontation. Well, what's a happy place in the bleachers? I mean, what No, you the get? first happy place was on the scorer's table when I was laying down. Right. And then the... Um, you put the headphones on. And I was playing around. I was trying to find happy places, you yeah. know? And then Ben Wallace, he, after he pushed me, I'm like, all right, cool, whatever. Then he hit me with a towel took his headband off, hit me with the headband. I tell a referee, I said, what's going on here? You know, like, and, and we can't even fight. 
I wish if they can clear it out and we had some space, that, like, that's a real fight. Right? So anyway, then when I got hit with the bear, I'm like, you know, now it's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. So Ben Wallace wanted to fight. And I was, I, as I was running in the stance, he was trying to, he was like, oh, there you go. I'm going to come get you on this side. But when he see, when he saw what I was doing, I, I don't think he wanted to escalate it that far because he could have came up there and we could have been fighting in a stance. But, um, you know, at that time, at that point, you don't hit nobody with objects. It's just simple. It's, yeah. it's black and white. It's that simple. Your mother, every parent taught you, don't hit nobody. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Everybody. You think the suspension and all was too much? I feel a couple of different ways about the suspension. Um, uh, something was something should have happened, and I, I made that suspension happen more because when I got suspended, then the next day I went on uh, NBC promoting a rap album. Actually, it was an R&B album. Uh, I put a lot of money into the album. The, the, the album was uh, slated to come out November 23rd, right? So now they tell me I have to spend no more checks, you know, for the year or, or indefinitely, you know? And I said, okay, if I don't get no more checks, I'm going to go work and whatever. It was not my fault. So the next day I'm on NBC and I'm promoting rap album and I'm just like not caring about a suspension when I should have been, you know, not saying nothing, right? But I'm like, you guys just suspended me for uh, my whole, my whole, my whole, the whole year. And not even that, indefinitely. I don't right. know what's going to happen next. Yeah, it turned out to be how many games? I mean, it was, a lot. It was 86 games, you know, and you know, it was 86 games. And I felt it was too much, you know. I felt it was too much, but I've never complained about it. You know, I'm not going to complain about it to this day because that's not my business. But you'd do the same thing again today. Somebody throws something and hits you in the face. 1,010% times five. Yeah. <laughs> I will never let nobody hit me. It's very important that people don't accept bullying. You see kids get bullied and they commit suicide. You know, they, they're hanging themselves. This is happening. You've seen, we see it all the time. You know, uh, this guy keep bullying me. Just the other day, this this uh, guy smacked a little kid. The kid was in the hallway. They filmed it and put it on World Star Hip Hop and the kid was crying. The kid was 12 years old. You know, that kid should have punched those guys in the face and maybe he would have died at that point. But he would have well, he would have died, you know, standing up for something, right? You know, and some kids are died not not even having the opportunity to uh, hit the bully back. They just commit suicide. You know, I w- I would never want anyone to to accept being bullied. Yeah, you could report it to someone, but never let nobody uh never uh, let nobody know that you're not tough. Always be tough. What do you think about bystanders in that? Because I'm always concerned about yeah. okay, somebody's bull- A's bullying B. And you got ten bystanders right. around watching it happen. I think they're as guilty as the bully. Yeah, well, sometimes it's like this. It's like this. If if you're if somebody's getting bullied, and and you're like, wow, what do I do? Do I go in there? You know, m- maybe you're small. Like, what, what, if I go in there, am I going to get hit? I could imagine what's going through bystanders' mind. But I see a lot of bystanders getting involved. Um, the one particular situation with the kid that was on World Star Hip Hop. It was only it was three guys, big guys, and one little kid. The kid was like twelve years old. The guys was like 18, 20 years old, and talking, smacking the kid, and saying, "Um, where's your father now?" You know, and the kid was just screaming and crying, you know. And I'm just like, it was this was, you know, I wish I was there <laughs> to help to help that kid. What do you think of these stories that we're seeing now, where these thugs are on the street just running up, blindsiding, cold cocking old people from behind and stuff like that? ridiculous and i'm glad that we see that because i never thought that would happen if we if it wasn't for social media we would have never seen this stuff (laughs) you know we just go on with our days i'm you know playing basketball in 1999 
You know, we don't see this stuff. We just getting paid, you know, and that's it. You know, a lot of this stuff is ridiculous and they need to, you know, do something about it. They should be treated harshly. Why is that happening? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. You know, sometimes you're not brought up the right way. You know, myself included. Like sometimes you can get uh, so um, attached uh, or influenced by uh, negativity, by by ignorance. And it becomes a part of you. I, I was ignorant at one point also. You know, I, I had my times, you know, and it's not always the bully's fault, which which sucks. So I'm talking about stand up to bullies, but it's not even always the bully's fault. You never know what that that bully even been could have been molested or beat as a child or a bully. You know, who, you know, who knows what, every, what everyone is going through, but it has to stop. Well, what we do know is research tells us that bullies are generally from homes where they are violent, where their parent is physically violent with them. Right. And they don't have the power to fight back or put it off, so they take that and vent it outside on someone else. So when you go to talk to the parent of the bully, you're talking to a bully who's bullied their kid, and so their kid goes out and bullies somebody. So when you try to talk to their parent, their parent's going to turn a deaf ear because they're bullies themselves. So I just said, be harsh, right? But so now, to your point, if you be harsh, the parent's going to turn to deaf ear. We're never going to we're never going to solve this problem, you know. So maybe it needs to be some type of uh, you know awareness to 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 a bullying situation because it's a it's a major problem, you know, in, in high schools. Yeah, one of the things that's really different today, and you said it winds up people getting dead sometimes, and. I've been to Capitol Hill to testify about this because before you get bullied at school, but then you go home and be safe, at least for the night. But now so much of the bullying is on social media where they're saying, we hate you, kill Mm -hmm. yourself, nobody likes you, you're fat, you're ugly. They can't get away from it when they go home and their parents think they're back in the bedroom doing their homework on the computer. But when in fact, they're on a social media platform with everybody telling them to kill themselves. Yeah, yeah, They yeah. can even change schools, but the bullies follow them to the other school. Absolutely. So it's hard to get away from. It is. And, you know, sometimes I look at my, my daughter and, you know, we, 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 live, we live okay and everything's fine. But I'm always wondering about, are my kids being bullied? Sometimes she comes home and talks about different things she's going through. Not as bad as other situations, but it's still like, oh, wow, people are just kind of cruel. You know, um, I think Twitter and, and, and Facebook... Instagram, they have the mute button, which is huge. Yeah. The mute button is huge. The the cause it's better than blocking someone. When you block someone, they know you blocked, they're gonna find you. When you mute them, they just like blah, 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 blah. you know, and I'm like, we don't hear you, buddy. <laughs> I call them keyboard bullies because <laughs> they wouldn't do that to your face. Mm-mm. 
but they'll sure do it on the internet. So you said your anger, you think, comes from a lot of what happened in your childhood. What happened in your childhood that made you so angry wow, as an you adult? Know, it was a lot of things, man. It was, it was things that made me tough, which I love, because that's passion, and it was things that made me angry, which I, which I realize now, and both those things mixed, <laughs> you know? So the things that made me tough playing on the courts, you know, even experiencing gunshots and seeing my friends get shot. Like, okay, I get it. But when you experience things personally, um, or somebody personally affected, you know, uh, mom and dad fighting a little too much because they don't know how to deal with adversity, then that, that passes down to a child. You know, I, I don't know how to deal with adversity. And, it's, and, it, and it shows in life. You know, um, so there was a lot of things that there's a lot of things that I that I've seen as a child, um, and that I've experienced, and uh, that made me um, ang- angry <laughs> at everyone. When did you realize that? When did it come clear to you that things that had happened to you before and you didn't have the power to change them left you angry and you were venting it on other people? I kind of knew it for a long time, but I didn't. But I didn't. I wasn't thinking about it. It was normal to me to have um, chaos. It was very normal. When my marriage started to be affected, I didn't even realize I wasn't present mentally and most of the times physically. You know, and that's, that, that, that puts a, a lot of pressure on the wife. Yeah. Because they got to raise the baby. You know, they got to make the food. They got to clean the diapers. You know, they got to control the house. They got to make sure you're okay. And they, you know, are you coming home at 4 a.m.? They're not really worried if you're out doing something. They, they worry about you. It was all that thing, that whole life I was living. So I wanted to kind of change that. I said, you know, um, you know, things like really, really need to change in my life. And my relationship might not last. Uh, but, you know, at, at least I can say I attempted to be a better person and still affect those people that I love that, sur- that surrounds me. The first time you saw a psychologist, you were what, 13? I was 13. Yeah. I was 13. How did you wind up? Was it at school? How did you get to see a psychologist? In my household, my mom and dad always look at mental health issues because my auntie had mental health issues, schizophrenia, in Creekmore Hospital. She was admitted to a psych ward, right? Yeah, still there. Still there now? Still there. When she, when uh, Kylie was born, we took him from the hospital with us. My cousin, which is my brother, his older brother, Wally, um, lived with us also, which is my big brother. So when he was born, you had to take We took him, him right from the hospital. Straight away. Yeah. Couldn't know, leave him with her. Couldn't leave him with her, which was my dad's sister. And my dad was a functional on medication. You know, uh, so, and then my, old, my big brother, he actually did 10 years in jail when he was older for drug trafficking. So although he had a family, brothers, my dad and my mom, which was his basically parents, he called him dad. You know, he still was affected. His dad wasn't in his life. You know, uh, he started to get in the streets and he was, that was my idol. You know, that was the guy when I was going to St. John's, I'm like, listen, we going to go to the NBA? Like, just chill. <laughs> you know, th- literally two weeks before I go to St. John's, I get a call. Yo, your brother's in jail. For what? Drug trafficking. I said, ah, he'd be out in a year. He, 10 years. I didn't see him 10 years later. You know, so it was, it was so many, it was so many different things like that that was starting to kind of mold me into the person I was. So your aunt is still in, diagnosed with schizophrenia. You say your dad? My dad's functional on medication. Bipolar. Okay. It's, yeah. Do you worry that 
you're genetically predisposed to these things? Not worried about it. This is we we live on. A, first off, we live on a beautiful planet, you know, um, and 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 this is the reality of where we live at and who we are as a people. So uh, even when I told people I want to thank my psychiatrist on national TV, which she was my psychologist, it's time to embrace it. You know, you got to embrace your, your bipolar. If you're bipolar because you have a chemical imbalance, you know, embrace it. You know, don't don't feel a certain, don't feel bad that you're bipolar because it's something that you can't control. Sometimes you can be bipolar because it's things that happen over a period of time that's just making you go crazy, you know? Um, and then you just can't control yourself and your emotions get so high, you just need help, you know, because you're about to explode, you know? And it's, it's so many different forms of mental health issues, you know? But I, I would say embrace it, embrace therapy, embrace yourself, and don't be so down on yourself because maybe you're bipolar or something. Like, enjoy enjoy your days you know ha have a good time are you bipolar um when i was diagnosed at 19 years old my first time i ever was die i was uh, subscribed medication um but i wasn't uh, the medication wasn't for me I, I was i was misdiagnosed i had i had depression and anxiety at, at the same time right you know so most of my sessions was um anger management sessions um but if I was bipolar or if I needed med medication, I would tell people to this day, I'm bipolar and I need medication. That just wasn't what I was diagnosed with. Do you have anxiety now? Does it hit you sometimes? I deal with everything so much better. Yeah. You know, um, I still have um, different things that I, I experienced. I used to be very insecure and sometimes I'm insecure now. Um, uh, which which is a big issue. Insecurity causes so many problems, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um. So that's like the that's the only thing that's probably li lingered over the years. But um, in terms of uh conflict, you know, uh, people saying things getting under my skin, um, anxiety, depression, it, it's kind of it's kind of gone. You know, I, I'm kind of in a good place. So it doesn't get to you anymore like it did? Nah, nah, I'm, I'm pretty much in a good place, <laughs> you know. Um, and now things don't always go perfect in my life. <laughs> of course. But I deal with things like I'm always happy. What's important to you now? What makes you get up every day and go about what you do? What makes you tick now? Man, so many things. Uh, boy, my, my, my kids, my wife, um, my, my immediate family. My my uh, my daughter's you know twenty one got got a got a baby I, I'm a granddad you know um and she's gonna get back into business and I'm just so grateful my my nineteen year old son scholarship to CSUN Northridge basketball scholarship potentially could go to the NBA he's a music producer you know my seventeen year old son offers from um Stanford Berkeley Princeton St John's computer science basketball scholarship investor um coder okay. My my little daughter, dancer on a dance team in high school. You know what? What more? What more could I want? What more could I want? <laughs> you know, I could just go on the beach now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, my my wife. <laughs> you know, smart smart woman and gra graduate. You know, holding down that the household and holding down me. You know, what more? What more could I want? What makes you happy every day? You say, what more could you want? What <laughs> gives you the sense of fulfillment? Honestly, I love boxing. Yeah, I, I love boxing. I love I love to stay updated on boxing because I'm a big fan of that sport. Yeah. Probably the number one activity in my life outside of what I'm doing, like in business, 
obviously I love basketball because I played and I'm more I'm in a basketball sports business. Um, not so much an NBA no more. But I, I love boxing and then I like to um, do things with my daughter. I did a lot of things with her last year that I would do with my teammates. Like we, used to, we used to go to Miami. We would go to New Orleans. We would go party. And I said, why I don't experience those things with my family? So a lot of things I would do with my friends, I like to experience with my family. How does your family describe you? What do um, they say about they you? They would say crazy, man. My yeah. family would say crazy. I mean, you got to, you know, the head of the household has some issues, you know, and he's still the head of the household. I don't care, you know, if I'm bipolar or schizophrenic, I, I run this household. <laughs> and they do it how I do it. I'm, but I'm a very, um, I'm a very uh, easygoing, uh, hippie dad. It's not, it's not hard to, um, to follow the rules in my house. Just be a good person, clean up a little bit, and go live a hippie life. <laughs> yeah. So who all's in the house now? Who's under your roof? Uh, my son, yeah. my daughter, my wife. Yeah? Yeah. Just the four of you. And, it's in my, and my oldest daughter, she moved out. Yeah. And then my youngest son is in Arizona at a prep school. So how often do you get to see him? I see him all the time. I um, go to Arizona. I haven't been there this year. I'm going soon. But I go there to see him play. Then he comes and works out with his dad. Then my, obviously my, my daughter and my son in the household. So we do everything together. So what are your goals right now? What's next for you? What are you going to do? You got to have something you're working towards, you're yeah. shooting for, right? Well, it's like in life, like, what do you want to do? If you only do philanthropy, that means you're not doing business. If you're only doing business, that means you're only thinking about money. You're not giving back. Like, that's not fulfilling. There's no substance in just business, you know? So for me, it's like, and doing both, then you're not going to have time for your family, you know? <laughs> Which is like... It's a trade-off, right? It is. You got to get a balance. So that's, it's all about balance for me. Um, how can I do all that, things I love, so I'm fulfilled, and so I can be around my family? So yeah. basketball and sports, like sports business, uh, it keeps me around something I love and, and then also keeps me around my family because my family's in sports, you know? So I try to just stay in that area. Uh, and sports is very philanthropic. You always give it back, you know, to a, to a kid, you know, that needs, that needs some guidance. Right. Would you ever coach basketball? Absolutely. Absolutely. What would be your dream job? My dream job is a couple of jobs I love. Um, assistant coach for the Lakers because Luke Walton's the head coach. Yeah. <laughs> that's my really good friend. I love him. Um, the Knicks, the Knicks, the, the Bulls. Um, and I'm not saying this because uh, I, don't, I don't want anybody's job. <laughs> I'm just right. saying that's my, my, my dream jobs. Uh, St. John's, um, LIU, Long Island University in uh -huh. New York City. Uh, and then Santa Monica Junior College. It's a couple. It's not all NBA. It's just different things right. I like. I like Santa Monica Junior College. Uh, and then obviously um, any school in the Los Angeles area are, are, are things that could stop me from uh, watching uh, boxing in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you actually aspire to try and get a job like that? Would you throw your hat in the ring? I threw my hat in the Nick ring. Uh, I wasn't really prepared, but they said the Nick job was open. I'm like, oh, it is? I'll do it, <laughs> you know, but they, you got to go with a presentation. You got to put in time and, and I'm involved in a couple of businesses right now, but I was, I would totally, I set up my team. So if I have to coach in a job like that, we are still ready to go. We are still going to continue to move and do business. I absolutely would love to be a, a head coach one day. So what's your business? What do you do business wise? Well, sports management. So we, it's a lot of things that, that a lot of mistakes I've made as an athlete, young athlete, 
when I was 19, I got drafted and I wanted to do my own shoe company, but I didn't know no business. I didn't know how to do a business plan. I didn't know anything. You know, I got into the music business with no strategy. Um, and now you look 20 years later, I went back to UCLA for digital analytics when I retired. Um, that was like two years ago. I went to Concordia, Irvine for business analytics. You know, I go to a lot of conferences around the world, you know, and meet, take all meetings and I'm learning more. So how can I give that back to athletes? Uh, an athlete that want to do a beverage, an athlete that want to do e-commerce, an athlete that want to get into business. How can we do that and then also, you know, build our own companies, you know, in, in-house? So that's what, that's what we're working on now. And, you know, raising money, <laughs> which is crazy. I'm like, you know, and it's, it's, like, it's like a hassle, but we're doing all these great things and it's all positive, all positive things. The statistics for athletes that come out of professional sports, NBA, NFL, whatever, is not good. I've seen statistics as high as 80% right. within two years of being out of the league are divorced, bankrupt, or in serious financial trouble or worse. Right. Why is that? There's a couple of reasons. I always tell people, when you make a million in the NBA, which is more now, let's say you make $1 million, which is only $500,000, give back to Uncle Sam right now and to anybody on food stamps, <laughs> you know, which I was, all right? So say you got three kids and you have two really good friends and a wife. That's six people. Divide that 500000 up by six people and live like you are worth six, um, 500000 divided by six. Let's just say 500000 divided by five. So I'm not saying give away the other 400000 but live like you're only worth $100,000. Because what happens is when you get all these people around you, you start to actually disperse money. I'm not saying disperse money. I'm saying stay in your stay but in that's your what means. happens and but sometimes you do disperse money so i'm not saying disperse money but i'm saying live as if you're not worth 10 million because you're only worth five and then you forget about the cars and the stuff you get for your other family members things you, the gifts and things so live like you're only worth about 20 percent of that why don't they do that why isn't the league preparing athletes to do that emmett smith is a good friend of mine i see people like you and emmett who are years out of the league you're thriving, you're healthy, you're contributing to society, you're making money, you're paying taxes, you're doing well. Why are you guys doing well and others are not? I wasn't always doing well. I understand. When I was young, my, my first three years in the league, I was in debt. I was just spending money. I didn't know about taxes, nothing, right? But but the thing is, I push myself to learn. I go to meetings. I, I, I don't just depend on like my financial team to teach me. A lot of people only depend on other things, you got to go out there for yourself. You got to take meetings with other uh, financial like experts, with banks. You know, um, try not to give your money to some private person. You know, who's going to invest your money? Like the bank is insured. You know, <laughs> the bank can't steal your can't steal your money. Um, and then also prepare for your future. Luckily, I had a good team at at 29 years old. Before I was out the league, I wanted to prepare for when I get out. We said, what are we going to do when we get out? You know, and I was able to weather a lot of storms, you know, just by preparation. And now I'm learning how not to spend your own money. And it's not about spending other people's money, but preparing businesses where you can raise, where well, you can raise yeah, money. Yeah, you spread the risk. You bring right. in investors, you share in the risk, and you share in the rewards, which right? Athletes, which athletes, I'm not saying, not only we don't do that, I'm going to just put, I'm going to group us. Not only we don't do that, we don't know how to do that. So if you're going to... Yeah, even if you're gonna go to a record label, you got a you, you got a music business, and you want to say, "Hey, uh, Interscope Records, can you give me two million dollars?" 
you have no plan. There's no plan. No. Right. But the league doesn't teach that. I look at it and I say, okay, here we've got a lot of young guys with no life experience, a lot of testosterone, a lot of money, and a lot of free time. What could possibly go wrong with this? (laughs) Seriously? You know, they do. The NBA offers a lot of services, and you either accept it or you don't. The MBPA, they have a partnership with the NBA, and they do things together, and they offer a lot of services. When I first got in, it wasn't as much. But right now, the NBA basically, they're setting you up not to fail. <laughs> so I would say the NBA, they, they are taking measures, but sometimes um, the timing just doesn't work. Even like college, I'm trying to prepare to get to the NBA. I'm not focused on school. You know, I'm not focused on economics or, or tax preparation or paying taxes, which is so easy to do, you know, <laughs> or paying bills. But you can just, you can log in your bills on in, in a bank. You know, they can pay for you online instead of you paying $5,000, $10,000 you know, to these companies, you know, so there's a lot of things that's missing. How much money did you blow that if you knew then what you know now, you would have back? I lost money from the brawl endorsement. So it's money I, I never received, but I lost. Um, I, I, and then uh, I think the music business, uh, I could have took that maybe a couple million dollars and put that in um, in Uber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, I invested in Lyft. I invested in a couple of companies in, in, in Silicon Valley, and it's things I didn't know in 1999. Like if I would have put, you know, ten thousand dollars in Apple, and you know, sometimes as athletes, and I get it, financial advisors want to preserve your wealth. I get it, and you should, but also, you know, introduce the, the these athletes into you know to other situations and to other people. There's a lot of smart people out there. Not everybody's Bernie Madoff, you know. It's a lot yeah. of smart ways to invest your money. How much of the problem is hangers-on that come from your prior life where you make it big and they don't, but they do hang on, and so you got a posse, yeah. you got an entourage? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not against the posse and entourage, totally not. Because, you know, when you can experience things, you know, with your family or your posse or your entourage, like, that's an amazing feeling. Like, imagine being a kid, all your friends, we going out, we buying, we going to spend 200 grand a night at the bar. All right, how many times are you spending 200 grand? You know, that's the problem. Or sometimes you're spending 10 grand, five grand, and now it's adding up to millions, you know? And now you're buying cars, houses, you know? And now people are asking for thousands of dollars, you know? And and sometimes you're not prepared for that much money going out and you don't have anything set up. You don't have no LLCs. You don't have no C-Corps. You don't have no 501c3s. You know, you're not getting nothing. You're not no tax benefits. And sometimes people, we, we move a little too fast, you know, and then we can get ourselves in some trouble. Did you learn to say no? Uh, yeah. No, no it's very hard. You know, when I first got into the league, I would, every one of my nephews get Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and everybody get, you know, it, that, it just is what it is. And I treated my nephews and my, mainly, mainly my nephews and nieces as my own children. Right. The same way. But as I got older, I'm like, wow, I got to take care of my children, you right. know? So, and then now you're saying no and you enabled people. And when you say that first no, they're like, what? No. <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, I'm very good at saying no. Yeah, you got to be, right? Because they'll absolutely bleed you to death if you don't. And it's not helping them. And it's not helping them. I think um, what I wish I would have done with my friends is gave each one a college scholarship at a, at a, at a school that maybe cost $2,500, I don't know, a year. Five. That would have been way better. Yeah. You know? Um, what I do now, uh, when people ask me for money, I give them the Warren Buffett book. If you read, you want $500, 
read the intelligent investor and give me a book report. And so many times nobody reads the book. I said, you, you don't really want the $500. Yeah. I'm going to give you this $500. But if you read that book as my friend or family member, you're going to be able to help me one day. Yeah. You know, can you help me? You know, and so when people are not able to read those tasks, you know, uh, now I'm say, okay, you don't want the $500. <laughs> yeah, you give them something to do and all yeah. of a sudden it's a little harder. It's a little harder. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> 600 pages. <laughs> yeah. So what are you going to be doing five years from now, 10 years from now? Five years from now, I'm hoping to be doing a lot of basketball games. I, I, you know, um, I, I want to be able, I, I want to be... Um, I want people to come to me and kids and say, hey, thank you for helping me uh, with basketball, <laughs> yeah. you know, and education. That's what I'm hoping to be, to be at for five years from now. You've been absolutely a bigger-than-life personality ever since you stepped onto the basketball court. I mean, I've watched you like everybody else. I've admired your skill. I've admired your leadership on the court. You've won citizenship awards. You've truly been a force to reckon with in the NBA and made a mark that will not soon be forgotten. It's been said we cannot leave a footprint in a moving stream, so I guess we'll all be forgotten at some point. Yeah. But you certainly have made an impact. What do people not know about you that you wish they did know about you? Yeah, um, I, I look at the careers of... Um just people I wish I could have been like. Tim Duncan. I love how focused he is. I envy certain people. Kawhi Leonard. Just how calm he is on the court. Super physical. Aggressive. From an inner city. But just so focused on the game. And then I go to Kobe Bryant. So focused on the game. I was never able to focus on the game. You know, when I first started to play, I would go into a, a game wanting to fight. It's not even about the game. I'm like, I just want to figure out a way to get into a fight. <laughs> right. And like, that's not helping something I love so much, something I was doing as a child, something I wanted so bad, which is, you know, trophies on top of trophies. You know, I still have a lot of trophies, but I would have had so much more awards, you know, if I would have just been like one of those guys. <laughs> that's such a paradox because you have to reconcile this for me because to sit here with you now and talk to you, you're such a friendly person. You got an easy smile, an easy laugh. You're charming, gregarious, outgoing, engaging. But yet you said you step on the court looking for a fight every yeah, day, yeah. which means you're looking to punch somebody in the face or whatever. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, it's like, you know, when the streets, um, I, I've been bullied a couple of times when I was younger, so I decided not to take that anymore. And, you know, so eventually for me, it was always survival. Um, playing basketball on 12th Street in the hood, how do you make it on that court with those men? And then how do you not get off? Because once you make it on, they're trying to get you off. They're trying to play hard. You got to man up. Sometimes you go play sports, you're playing like, uh, let's say, uh, Hamels and Far Rockaway. You know, I remember we got chased out the park, me and my friend Stefan Barnes. We got chased out the park. They hit my man over the head with a bottle. We was only 12 years old. We had the free throw line. So basketball, for me, it was always like, all right, when I step on this court, if anybody want to get it popping, meaning like ready to do whatever, we was ready. You know, I, we used to go to games. Sometimes I go to games, with, we go to games with hammers. We call them hammers. They guns. You know, we got hammers in the backpack, just 
you know, if anything go down, like we ready. And when I got to the NBA, that's the that's the fight that I had, you know, when I was in St. John's. It was like that same thing that made me great was that, <laughs> you know. Um, and then later I realized um, I, I decided to I decided to cover that emotion and that passion just for balance because I didn't want to feel like that anymore. So as you can see later in my career, I wasn't as emotional about like, you know, when I get a bucket or when I get a dunk. Because uh, I, I wanted to just, I just needed a balance, you know. And I said, I wanted to take a little bit of the love out of basketball. I needed to, I needed to just like put it in the dirt so I could have a little balance. Do you think you're still that way today, ready to fight? No, nah, I actually, no. Um, when, when I'm coaching a kid, a little kid, 8-year-old, 10-year-old, which I do for free. I don't charge them. I just love it. I'm teaching them to be tough, you know. Also, I like the Tim Duncan um, kind of effect. Tim Duncan just doesn't react. So I teach that. Be tough. Don't back down. No matter what happens, if somebody smacks you in the back of the head, do not, um, in the game, in the game. <laughs> I, I often teach do not react. Even though I said earlier, don't be bullied. But if you react in a basketball game, you can make a big mistake. You can get ejected. You could be an important piece of that team, no matter what happened to you. I've seen Tim Duncan do a time in and time out. And, you know, I always wanted to be like him. So I teach people to be tough. But, yeah, I do teach them not to react. Are you better now or just different? Is it better that you don't react now? Um, Have you gotten soft or is it better? No, I hate being soft. I don't like that. But I am a little soft, but it's not something I'm happy with. (laughs) Well, I mean, have you lost your hood edge? Have you become suburban dad? I know, right? I try to avoid conflict as much as possible. Yeah. And then, you know, if something happens, somebody brush me or somebody want to roll rate, I I, I let a lot of things slide now. You know, nowadays it's, um, yeah, I let things slide. (laughs) Just in everyday life, if you're in a crowd or something, somebody bumps you, is your first reaction like, okay? Well, yeah, yeah. Not no more because you, it's a different situation for everything. Somebody can bump you by mistake. Somebody can bump you on purpose. purpose. Somebody can be bumping you to push a button. There's so many things that you can't control, you know, and, and but you can't control yourself. So I always try to be aware of things that I can't control. Yeah, but if I was in a crowd looking for somebody to pick a fight with, you would not be on my short list. <laughs> I sh- you not you would not be on my short list there'd be, be 30 or 40 other guys i tell you i was in a club like six years ago and this guy he wanted an autograph but i was hammering coming out the club because i was having a great time right and i'm like excuse me sir i cannot sign an autograph right now you know he thought i was disrespecting him he came and tried to punch me in the face <laughs> you know this literally happened it was on tmz the guy tried to punch me in the face because i wouldn't sign an autograph you know and i was so bad i'm like i want to fight now <laughs> You know, and then um, and uh, we got in the car and ran off. <laughs> it was like that type of stuff. Like you can't control those situations. No, but it's hard to say no to a fan, though. They do get their feelings hurt. I'm my own no person. I don't like people saying no for me. So if I'm out, I get 20 fans to sign autographs. I'll sign them. But then it's now another 10 when I sign up, and I gotta go. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and that's hard. Yeah. You got to keep your feet moving. I know. So, yeah, yeah, it's true. You got to keep your it's feet true. moving. You understand? You don't make eye contact and keep your feet moving. Those are the keys, right? Yeah, you get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've had a good teacher. Oprah taught me. She said, if you don't feel like it, just don't go out there that day. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. 
Thank you so much for Absolutely. doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I have really enjoyed getting to know you. Absolutely. I also want to tell you how much I appreciate and respect the fact that you've been transparent about mental health issues and your advocacy about mental health issues because people as famous, as high profile, as bigger than life as you are that are transparent about that, I promise you it gives people permission to say in their own life, if a man like you can be transparent about it, if a man like you can say, I can benefit from it, then millions of other people say, if he can acknowledge it and say he can benefit from it, then I can. And your transparency about this and your being vocal about this, I promise you, has saved thousands of lives because people got help instead of being depressed and taking their own lives. You, my friend, have saved thousands of lives, and I thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.